Revolution Radio of FreedomSlips.com, the number one listener-supported talk radio station, throwing ourselves upon the gears of the machine. Revolution Radio, where information never sleeps. You called down the thunder, well now you've got Chris, you tell them I'm coming, and hell's coming with me, you hear? Hell's coming with me! Revolution Radio! We did not engage in conflict that was out of line with our mission. Is it disloyal? Is it sedition? Is it treason to oppose the hands of tyranny? Never! I will never send troops anywhere on a mission of that kind without telling them that if somebody shoots at them, they can darn well shoot back. I know not what course others may take, but as for me, give me liberty! Oh, give me! A dark cloud is finally lifting across the world as U.S. military intelligence and their global partners are destroying the deep state criminal power structure that has ruled over our planet for hundreds of years. We are free with the God-given right, and we shall not yield that right to any power on Earth. Hi, I'm Scott McKay. The world is at, and I am your host on The Tipping Point. On Revolution Radio, where every Monday from 8 to 10 p.m. Eastern, we bring you the latest in this ensuing takedown of this global criminal empire. That's an image of strength. You'll get the raw, hard truth here on The Tipping Point. So come join us Mondays, 8 to 10 p.m. Eastern, in Studio B at Revolution.Radio. Thanks for listening while we take that short break here at Revolution Radio, FreedomSlips.com. And now we're going to get back to your host. All right. Good afternoon. Good morning. Uh, good evening, wherever you are. For me, it's mid-afternoon. It's 4 p.m. here. 20 degrees or 19 degrees in Newcastle. So that's the best we've had so far this year. And it's bright sunshine outside. Uh, my place doesn't lend itself to letting the sun in very well, so I haven't seen very much of it. But uh, it is bright sunshine outside, and it is 19 degrees. Uh, the pollen count is probably enormous at this point, so if I start sneezing, you know why. Uh, let me know if you can hear me. Uh, just a quick reminder, Revolution Radio is a listener-supported station. So we do rely on, on people to to make donations and set up regular monthly things just to help us out. We've got two, two studios running 24 hours a day, plus the Hawk's Nest. And you'll, you'll find probably 80 or 90 hosts all doing their own thing in their own way and not necessarily agreeing with each other not necessarily having the same point of view, but that's what freedom of speech is about. So you'll find something you love, something you hate, something in between probably. For me, I tend to go more for the entertainment shows than the political shows, but that's just me. And um, I try and keep this light or light enough that it's not an endless stream of uh, dystopian science fiction but there are times when it has to kind of delve into that territory and 
we're at we're at a point in in human evolution where we've got uh, some serious shit coming to the surface. So uh, I've rearranged the show a little bit. So the show I was going to do isn't going to happen this week, and uh, I shall make this up as I go along and uh, see where we go. So I found a piece last night, which is a fairly short conversation between Steve Bannon and Naomi Wolf, and I thought it's worth playing. It's definitely worth playing. And one of the, there's a couple of things in here that are absolutely uh, essential to know about. So that's the first thing I'm going to do. Let me share my screen here. And then we're off and running. So this is from a couple of days ago, I think. And it is Naomi Wolf speaking with Steve Bannon on the war room. What have you been up to? Uh, well, there's nowhere I'd rather be than the war room. So there we are. Um, so I can't tell you where I was because it's off the record, but I can tell you what I talked about. And it's all, once again, the work of the posse, this the Pfizer documents and what's in them. But um, I do have, I found over the last couple of days, what I think is the smoking gun, you know, the, the kind of why behind this whole the why. ugly, the why behind this whole ugly story I've been telling for a year about this injection um, and what it does to people. So uh, I'll just update the posse that we did have report 71, which uh, did show um, almost 3,000 adverse events of an arthritis type or rheumatoid rheumatoid arthritis, joint pain, musculoskeletal pain. Again, two-thirds of those were women. We've seen that consistently, as you know, that there's a three-to-one, four-to-one, five-to-one, eight-to-one women versus men suffering from this injection. And all of the adverse events for of the rheumatoid arthritis type took place within 32 days of the injection. So that is pretty powerful cause-effect. So having said that, um, I was talking to Steve. For Kirk. people that had not had this problem before, correct. Th that's not a good. That's not a good uh, clinical trial, right? No, indeed. And and at events now, when I share this, people say, "Oh my gosh, I now have arthritis. I now am in pain. This happened right after my second shot. This happened right after my booster." They hadn't realized. Because, of course, doctors never say, probably don't even know, a doctor who has our book knows um, that arthritis, joint pain, rheumatoid type joint pain is the um, number one uh, side effect um, with muscle pain being second, of course, COVID being third. But, you know, leaving that giant pile of suffering and misery aside for a minute, um, I was speaking to Steve Kirsch at... Another event, the well-known uh, vaccine critic, especially mRNA vaccine critic, and I presented my evidence that you all are familiar with um, about reproductive harms. And he was you know, persuaded, who isn't, but he also said that he wasn't persuaded that it was intentional. And I know that you raised this question with me legitimately, right? I mean, if we don't have a memo that says, you know, Bill, let's, you know, destroy the fertility of America's women. Because to believe that is... To accept that they're monsters, right? And so that—that's—I uh, could get there, but I can't. I'm not there yet. Right, absolutely, and that's as it should be. I mean, we are journalists, but I do—I do think I found um, intentionality, and I'll tell you what I mean. Um, so I literally Googled "do lipid nanoparticles affect fertility," and within two seconds, I saw a 2018 and a 2017 study 
both of them peer-reviewed, one of them by Chinese scientists, and they both confirm that lipid nanoparticles have been known at least since 2017 to dramatically destroy fertility. So this is... Where were those studies? My, your point is mm-hmm. that no, it's impossible for Pfizer not to have known that. It's impossible for FDA or, or CDC, Dr. Walensky and others, not to know about that study. Well, everyone in the lipid nanoparticle space has known since 2017 that they destroy fertility. And let me read you just one quote, uh, because it's so dramatic. Um, This is the 2018 NIH study. Nanoparticles can pass through the blood testis barrier. Remember, we broke that story. We thought we were breaking it, but the NIH knew. Um, Placental barrier, again, we thought we were breaking it, NIH knew. The epithelial barrier, which protect reproductive tissues, and then Lipid nanoparticles accumulate in reproductive organs. Again, we thought we broke that story. NIH knew in 2018. Nanopart- You're every time you got the data, you thought you were breaking it. Then you looked, and they already knew because these studies were done. Correct. Nanoparticles accumulation damages organs, testis, epididymis, ovary, and uterus by destroying Sertoli cells, Leydig cells, and germ cells. And you remember Sertoli cells and Leydig cells are the hormones that regulate masculinity, that turn boys at adolescence into men, that create recognizable adult men with deep voices, broad shoulders, you know, body hair, the ability to father children, um, and germ cells causing reproductive organ dysfunction that adversely affects sperm quality, quantity, morphology, and motility, meaning the ability of sperm to inseminate a woman, or reduces the number of mature oocytes, which are eggs, and disrupts primary and secondary follicular development. In addition, nanoparticles can disrupt the levels of secreted hormones, causing changes in sexual behavior. And this was all known? NIH. Then, then how can they possibly, this is my point, how can they, if you're saying that's intentionality because they knew this beforehand, how could, how could, we, how could this have been covered up by even people who had done those studies, right? Forget FDA and CDC. Let's say they're all in on it. How do you then get the people, once they saw this happening, how the people actually did their studies going, hey, hey, you're not watching, you're not seeing our studies. Why did it take you guys after we went, after the Pfizer gave and was forced by the courts to give it. You did the assessments. You you did the analysis. Said, oh, breaking. Oh, we found out that this has got an antecedent or precedent. Well, first of all, I think that the scientists who work with nanoparticles should be, and the scientists who you know created this the, the, vaccine, they're on the payroll. Should, well, should be dragged in front of microphones and made to answer that question. But I can tell you, one reason I can tell you about it is I don't take funding from the NIH. The people who publish this study are the people who fund the scientists who are doing these, who are finding these harms and know about these harms. I need to read one more quick quote, please. So in the 2017 study, which is called Toxicity of Nanoparticles on Reproductive Systems in Animals, um, it says females are particularly particularly more vulnerable to nanoparticle toxicity, and toxicity in this population may affect reproductivity and fetal development, just like we've been finding. We laboriously track down midwives. They told us about the placentas. Dr. James Thorpe told us about the, the fetal malformations. 
they knew in 2017 that these lipid nanoparticles would cause fetal malformations. Moreover, various types of nanoparticles have negative effects on uh, germ cells, fetal development, and the female reproductive system. Boom. This is another peer-reviewed published study. This is in Frontiers in Science.org. You have dozens of NGOs uh, uh, for women's health and better women's health. Uh, you have many of those that are funded by philanthropies or wherever, and some of the government, these NGOs, are about women's health for minorities. Right. And, and you've already shown where this whole thing was weighted towards minority. You know, they were paying people to take it to try it. Mm -hmm. Of all those groups... Why is no one at the barricade saying, oh, my God, it's it's eight to one. It's principally right. do the thing, minority of women, right. uh, the most the, the, the most vulnerable, the poorest. Why is there not some outrage, at least not even on the left overall, but just one group? Right. You know, honestly, they've all taken the money. You know, these people who flowed the money from the CARES Act to trusted messengers knew, knew just whom to buy. And so now they've taken the money and they're silenced and maybe their conscience is bothering them. But I guess the last thing I want to say is that hormones, you know, changes in sexual behavior. So many young adults and I'm a big supporter of LGBTQ rights. So many young adults are confused about their sexuality or they've been injected. And parents are saying my teenager, my young adult doesn't care about dating, doesn't care care about courtship, doesn't care about getting their driver's license, right? I wrote a whole book on female sexual response and about the relationship between hormones to feelings. And basically, these lipid nanoparticles are dissolving bonding. They're dissolving attachment between mother and child, between husband and wife. They're dissolving the families. On drugs every day, and these things you see, the suicide rates up, the suicide rate with young girls up. Are you saying that you believe you're going to be able to tie that back to the vax? All I'm saying is what I see here, which is these two studies say they negatively affect reproduction and that they negatively affect sexual behavior. And I'm telling you, having studied women and bonding and hormones, that if you affect hormones, you're going to affect things like oxytocin, which is how mothers bond with children. And many women anecdotally are saying they're having trouble bonding with their children. You're going to affect how, how husbands bond with wives and vice versa. You're dissolving, like, obviously needs more study by uncompromised scientists. But you literally, from what these studies show, they're dissolving the way human beings attach to each other. Okay. You're going to bounce and go do your other interview, and then yes. you're going to come back. Yes, Fine. Perfect. Me. We're going to set you up to go do that interview right now. That's Naomi Wolf with another blockbuster. Just want to say. All right. I extracted that from a longer interview, and uh, so far I haven't uh, I haven't really <clears throat> looked at the, the second part of it, but uh, there, was, there was one thing that she said at the end of that, that that stuck out to me last night where it was about one o'clock in the morning when I found this piece and that's oxytocin so oxytocin is an absolutely critical hormone for human reproduction because you won't get close to people unless you've got good oxytocin levels appropriate oxytocin levels so that's it is a, it's about bonding about attachment it's about uh the need to form relationships. So if if oxytocin levels shift, then everything in society shifts into more individuality and less relationship. So that's that's going to be a a tricky thing to to navigate through in the next twenty or thirty years because all the people who've 
been vaccinated are going to have a, a, a certain amount of that. And it'll never get related, it'll, unless Naomi Wolf ends up on the front page of the New York Times at some point, which I doubt very much is going to happen, or ends up on CNN talking about these issues, which is unlikely. It'll it'll not get related back to the vaccine, but it's a, it's a shift in society, potentially, to, to varying degrees, because everybody reacts differently. And everybody's bodies are slightly different. So hormone production's slightly different for people. But uh, oxytocin, oxytocin is a is a critical factor in family relationships, in community relationships, in sexual relationships. So if you loosen that level of bonding, number one, it makes it easier to influence individuals if they're not bonded with family or community so if the aim of the game was to increase influence on individuals then that's that's how it's that's the mechanism for that to happen uh, the other thing that happens when when pe people are a bit more isolated within society is they start to think for themselves a little bit more so it could potentially have a a thinking effect on people as well. It'll change the way people think. So that, uh, people will be more individual. They're more likely to reject parts of society. So that can be a good thing or it can be a bad thing, depending on your point of view and depending on the situation. But it's something that's going to accelerate if Naomi Wolf's hypothesis is accurate which i think it probably is so it's something we need to keep an eye on with with children with families with community groups it's going it's going to take the women's groups standing up and talking about these things to put it on people's radar and uh, i find it Interesting that I'm I'm responding to the women much more than I do to them to the men when they're talking about these things. Uh, the other thing with Naomi Wolf is she's a Rhodes Scholar, and her husband's associated with military intelligence. So we've got to keep that in mind as well. She's definitely part of the establishment, which is probably why Bannon chose her to to head this whole uh, analysis operation that they've got running a, a daily cloud so she's because she she's from the the liberal end of the spectrum and she's part of the establishment she's a very a very clear voice for that part of the political spectrum so there's some there's some thought gone into this and it's uh it's 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 an interesting process. So, for me, um, whether it's deliberate or not, well, there might be a small number of people who are producing the intentionality for this. Uh, the majority of people are going going along with the system. The majority of people are, are wanting to pay their mortgage and send their kids to a good school. But that's not an excuse. Only. Only following orders is not a valid reason for 
the annihilation of the human race's ability to reproduce and to bond into families that's uh, that's not an excuse so we do need to hold people accountable at the very least this is corporate manslaughter and at worst it's it's mass murder so there's no way we can ignore it and there's no way that it should be ignored we have to we have to just carry carry this with us until it starts being talked about mainstream which might be another another year or two Naomi, Naomi Wolf's influential she's got contacts so uh, she was talking about being in Washington and briefing people on a confidential basis so she's talking to people behind the scenes things things are being spoken about and uh, that gives me hope for the future it gives me it gives me it's it makes it not completely eugenics based dystopian science fiction it means that there's something else going as well going on as well there's another impetus going on for waking people up at the same time and uh, it's a matter of keeping ahead of the curve really knowing having a reasonable analysis of what's going on and being as much as possible ahead of the game so if we we know the direction of travel that these, these things are happening in, we know the direction of travel in terms of digital currency, in terms of 15-minute cities and smart cities, and in terms of uh, the attack on, on, on human fertility. So we have to get ahead of it. We, we have to make sure that we're ahead of the game and, and putting boundaries in place at every step. So that's that's kind of what I wanted to say on that. I've got another piece now, which is uh, this is part of the original show that I was going to do, which is uh, a piece on the history of the CIA. So I'm gonna I'm gonna reshare my screen just to make sure it happens properly, and then set that up. Uh, let's try that again. I don't think it worked. Let me just do it again. Ooh, there we go. That's the one I want. All right, so this is about a 30-minute piece. This will take us pretty close to the end of the show, I think. Uh, it's the history of the CIA, starting with the OSS. Uh, it's about half an hour, 28 minutes long, I think. So it's about right for the show. I'm gonna. There's a series of these videos. They're on the Eyes Wide Open channel. So I guess just to start off a bit um, on YouTube about hearing a bit of background about where I've been for these past six years. Uh, you can skip to the time set on screen. Otherwise, here we go. Well, it's been a while. Uh, I guess I should address my absence. So let me skip the first five minutes. For this kind of history, this history of America. So the wait should be worth it. Well, I've been rambling for a while. I guess there's no better time to start.
I have absolutely no recollection of destroying any document. I told the American people I did not trade arms for hostages. Now watch this drive. The history of the CIA begins where much of modern history starts, during the Second World War. Shockingly, the United States did not have a dedicated foreign intelligence agency before the Second World War. The FBI handled domestic intelligence, much like it does today, and that was only founded in the early 20th century. It was led by its longtime director, the first director of the FBI, J. Edgar Hoover. All other foreign intelligence was largely handled by the State Department and the Department of Defense. Before World War II, the entirety of U.S. intelligence capabilities and capacity could be found in a few disparate filing cabinets at the State Department. All this would change and balloon during the war, as the United States was caught off guard by Pearl Harbor in 1941. The surprise attack by the Japanese on Hawaii necessitated a response from President Roosevelt, where he created the Office of Strategic Services, or the OSS for short, an innocuous-sounding agency that would oversee all intelligence and covert operations during World War II. Now, this is important here to make a note. Um, Office of Strategic Services, on the surface, sounds quite you know, benign. This is something that was often used throughout the CIA's history. They would name operations, they would name departments, very banal sounding names to try to make the public unaware of the sinister undertones within those agencies. So let's get into the history of the OSS and how the CIA became what it is today. I guess let's lay out a few quick things before we get into the actual history. Throughout this series, a general theme that will be explored heavily will be that of the CIA as an integral part of a parallel shadow government beside the elected government of the United States. Now, I want you all to hold on. This is language that is highly codified. It's been used often by the American right, especially since the rise of Trump and right-wing populism has become very strong in the United States. Um, I think that this is actually really muddies the water for serious conversations about the uh, existence of a deep state within a country. Uh, the United States is not the only country in the world with a deep state. This can actually be observed everywhere. Um, pretty much any uh, democratic capitalist country has a deep state to speak of. Let's just get into the explanation of it and the theory behind it. The theory of, of deep states and deep politics was developed by a man named Peter Dale Scott. Um, and essentially, um, his theory goes that the United States has obviously an elected government, that being the House of Representatives, the Senate, and the Presidency. Although behind this overt government stands a largely un unelected, unaccountable, and often reactionary wing of the government that acts as a guardian of elite interests and corporate profits. This is often termed the deep state. This term deep state has been hijacked by right-wing conspiracy theorists, as I've said, using it to denounce any government actors that they disagree with. In this series, we'll be using the term deep state to mean any unelected officials that work to undermine the democratic will of the people of the country. And most of the time it will be the United States, but also all the other countries that will be impacted by the CIA throughout this history. Going by this definition, the deep state will include in this series just as a short list, the Department of Defense, 
primarily the Pentagon and the Joint Chiefs of Staff, but we can also include the entire sort of security state, as it's called, which includes the Department of Homeland Security and a lot of other affiliated departments. Um, just for example, um, the Department of Defense also has uh, an intelligence unit, so does the Air Force, so does the Navy. So all of these pieces together form sort of the security state. This deep state also includes the FBI, which can be seen quite clearly as a domestic counterpart to the CIA. Um, it includes the defense industry itself, sort of what we're going to call the military industrial complex. So essentially all of the industries in the United States that produce uh, weapons, arms, military technology, um, these have a very strong role in American government and continue will continue to gain a larger role throughout this history. This will also include um, any industries that have maybe an indirect link to military. For example, um, the oil industry, uh, fossil fuels, think tanks and institutions such as NATO and the International Monetary Fund, organized crime elements, um, for example, the mafia, mafia not only in the United States, but across the world. Um, this can include church institutions such as the Vatican, which will be very important with the history of uh, Operation Gladio, which will be coming up shortly. And of course, our deep state network is the CIA. Now, it's important to note that these institutions are not always working explicitly together, right? I mean, we're not talking about all of these people, right? This is quite a large group of organizations I've talked about here, and you, you could be skeptical, and I, I wouldn't blame you for being skeptical that all of these people are colluding in a serious way to push their interests. The important thing is that these groups undeniably all have shared interests, those being capital, those being U.S. empire, and those being anti-communism. These three central tenets come together in all of these institutions to create what could be considered a blob or the deep state, a link of organizations, a network that moves in unison to push these goals forward, with the central piece being the CIA and arguably the security state as a whole. Now, as is typical of these deep institutions, the OSS was not created as a usual military establishment. Much like the future CIA, its offshoot, the OSS was quickly filled with members of the elite ruling class, which will be seen throughout this series, not only in the CIA, but across this entire deep state network, is that most of the people involved are not average folks like you and I. These are people that come from you know, Wall Street. Uh, these can be bankers, lawyers, business executives, former generals. These are the types of people that filled the ranks of the early CIA and the OSS. So it's important to note that these are not average US soldiers. These are people that come from the American elite class. So I guess we'll start with the first director of the Office of Strategic Services. The first director was William Donovan, otherwise known by his nickname, Wild Bill. William Donovan's nickname of Wild Bill comes from the baseball player, Wild Bill Donovan, who would coach the Yankees between the years of 18 and 1917. Um, he's most notable for being a World War I hero, um, and he was also a self-made millionaire Wall Street lawyer. Um, during World War I, he served as the U.S. Coordinator of Information, um, which was an early intelligence arm of the U.S. Department of Defense. So when FDR created the OSS in 1942, um, Donovan was likely high on his list. He had some intelligence background um, and Donovan was named as its director. 
Now, in the history of American intelligence, uh, Donovan was largely overshadowed by his subordinates, um, especially a man named Alan Dulles, which we'll be talking about a lot in the early parts of the series. As the director of OSS, he worked as a coordinator, ensuring that his agents were undertaking successful missions. And most importantly, um, his army bona fides provided a cover for the OSS and the future CIA, as he was perceived as a respectful and dignified man by the security establishment. This is an important key. Um, the CIA and uh, the OSS were often scrutinized by the security state, um, as they believed that they could take over that role. So having Donovan as a military man, a former military hero, some would say, um, being the leader, gave a certain sense of legitimacy to the new OSS. Now, despite him being a quote-unquote honorable man at the time, um, most accounts of Donovan portray him as a blunder, failing to achieve success in his exploits, and overall just not having the, the success that the future CIA would have. For example, in a report written by Colonel Park about the OSS in 1945, um, this report was presented to President Truman when he was thinking of creating a new spy agency. Donovan is portrayed as a drunk um, that does not hire based on merit, but based on the, quote, old boy network of connections from Wall Street. Now, this is pretty glaring, um, especially since we know that elitism is, is deeply ingrained in the OSS. Now, this is corroborated by a story of when uh, Donovan went to Romania um, with a, he left a briefcase filled with critical OSS intel in a brothel in Romania, which was later intercepted by Gestapo agents. The report notes that he often forgot about agents that he sent across the world, um, such as an OSS agent that was stranded in Liberia. Um, he had also accidentally ordered to blow up some OSS agents in France um, in another blunder. Um, Donovan was subsequently dismissed by Truman and replaced by Roscoe Hillencoder, uh, a U.S. naval officer, to become the first director of the CIA. Um, so at the end of the day, President Truman did not have faith in Donovan, and he was fairly ineffective as a leader of intelligence. And I think Truman saw more respect in and more dignity in an actual operating military officer, even though Hillencoder, as we'll see later, was not exactly um, a saint himself either, um, quite, a, quite a devious man himself. Now, this is bringing us to another important theme and, and a recurring subject in U.S. intelligence is that the idea that you never really leave the CIA once you are sort of, you retire or once you are discharged, whatever it is, Often, these agents remain intimately involved, and Donovan was no exception. Uh, he would remain an integral part of the agency, and officially he returned to public life after the war, returning to his law practice. However, he remained present as an advisor to Alan Dulles during his tenure as director of the CIA, and was present for many landmark operations. Now, just to wrap up on Donovan here, he may have been fairly irrelevant to our larger history, but he was the anchor that brought together all the agents in the OSS. Many of these agents would form the original cotter of the CIA. Many of the CIA's most notable and criminal acts would take place while these original characters were in control. So we can really see Donovan as the godfather of modern American intelligence. Now, even if you haven't read any history about the CIA, it is likely that you've heard the name Alan Dulles. He is arguably one of if not the most important person in modern American history. He gets talked about quite a bit, um, a lot of glowing sort of op-eds about Alan Dulles, which I think are pretty shameful, as probably one of the most uh, reprehensible characters in American history, but still incredibly influential. 
In this next section, which will be probably the majority of this part, uh, we will outline Alan Dulles' career at the OSS, how he became a spy, um, and how he will be a major fixture of the next episodes, how he's going to rise to become the future, the first civilian director of the CIA, and how this man had such impact on American history. So that being said, I just want to leave one last note before we get into Alan Dulles. The most of this background information about Dulles is from a really great book by David Talbot called The Devil's Chessboard. It's actually a, a book that I have I have quite fond memories of reading because it actually got me back into reading um, after taking quite a large break. It is a great read. I highly recommend it if you're interested in any of the topics talked about here because a lot of my information is sourced from there and uh, David Talbot is uh, an incredible author and very readable. So highly recommend The Devil's Chessboard. Let's talk about Alan Dulles. So Alan Dulles found himself at the upper echelons of the American elite class. His maternal grandfather, John W. Foster, was Secretary of State under President Benjamin Harrison, and his uncle by marriage was Woodrow Wilson's Secretary of State. So these are some serious links to uh, the American uh, democracy, American government, and uh, Dulles himself came from one of the preeminent East Coast families of lawyers and Wall Street men. Uh, he was born in Watertown, New York, and then he would go on to graduate from Princeton University, and he would get his law degree at George Washington University. Before the war, Dulles worked as a lawyer at the prestigious Wall Street law firm Sullivan and Cromwell, which his brother, John Foster Dulles, uh, who would be the future Secretary of State under President Eisenhower, was a partner of. So it's important to note that there, there is a severe conflict of interest here between uh, the Sullivan and Cromwell list of clients and Alan Dulles' duties as an OSS agent. Let me elaborate a bit. So Sullivan and Cromwell's clients included many Nazi-adjacent firms such as IG Farben, who manufactured uh, the Zyklon B gas that was used in the Nazi gas chambers. This also included Krupp AG, which is a German arms manufacturer, and many other notorious firms. What we see here is a person that is stuck between two worlds, right? They are working for the OSS that gets its orders mostly directly from President Roosevelt, who's trying to defeat the Nazis, but they are also representing their clients, who are these firms that are either fully Nazi, such as IG Farben and Krupp AG, or affiliated with the Third Reich. So this had a serious impact on Dulles's decision-making and some of the operations that the OSS would go on. Dulles's resume does not end there. He was also elected as the president of the Council of Foreign Relations in 1927, which is an influential conservative organization made up of business elites, bankers, industrialists, high-ranking government officials, and former military men. According to the organization's mandate, quote, their mission is to use interventionism to make the world safe for democracy, which obviously is quite in line with Alan Dulles, who has access to the OSS, which is one of the largest operating agencies in the world that can make interventions happen. Dulles used this platform on the Council of Foreign Relations to influence others towards his firebrand view of America's future. He would state at the 1946 council meeting, so right after the war, that the United States should not go too far in its efforts to cleanse Germany of its Nazi past because, quote, most men of the caliber required to run the new Germany suffer a political taint, i.e. they were Nazis. This further entrenched Dulles as a clear Nazi sympathizer, which he was throughout his entire career. We'll continue to show more examples 
um, it continues to come up. Before we move on to uh, Alan Dulles's exploits during the Second World War with the OSS, let's discuss IG Farben, the German chemical conglomerate uh, that was on the Sullivan and Cromwell customer list a bit before we move on to other things. The relationship between the Dulleses and the German chemical company IG Farben further displays where the Dulleses' sympathies lie during the Second World War, which were likely with the Nazis. IG Farben represented one of the pillars of the Reich's industrial base. Uh, it was formed as a conglomerate of several of the top German chemical and pharmaceutical companies in the 1920s. Uh, we're talking a massive firm. We're talking one of the biggest companies in Germany. This was essentially a monopoly that included all of the major chemical producers in Germany and uh, was one of the largest companies in the Reich. So IG Farben supplied many of the essential supplies, such as synthetic fuel, which IG Farben had the patent for at the time. And during the rise of Nazism in Germany, the Reich supplied price guarantees and purchased a 5% equity stake in IG Farben to help fund the increase in capacity of synthetic fuel production. So we're talking literal state control of this company. We are talking about a direct link to the Nazi party in IG Farben. And who is their legal representation? It's the Dulles brothers. So with that being said, IG Farben would produce a massive share of the fuel that would run the Nazi war machine. Because remember, the Nazis didn't have access to huge natural oil supplies. So they relied heavily on this synthetic fuel that was produced by Farben. IG Farben is not the only sinister company that the Dulles brothers were working with at Sullivan and Cromwell, but it represents the cornerstone of the Dulles' complicity in Nazi terror. It is important to note that the intelligence agents casted from the Wall Street circles never stopped serving their former clients. This is an important note to make because it's honestly, it's almost like a revolving door. It's often this metaphor is used that, you know, somebody from the private sector will come into uh, the intelligence agencies or into the Pentagon and they will still have their former clients best interests in mind. It's just natural. I mean, a lot of these people continue to be shareholders. They continue to have deep, intimate relationships with the people on those boards. So it would make sense that they would continue to uh, have sympathies for those former clients. And of course, you know, the Dulles brothers knew that the war was going to end eventually, especially Alan, and that he might have to go back and work for Sullivan and Cromwell. So of course, he wants to continue to see the success of that firm, which means continuing to serve IG Farben and serve the Nazi Reich. So with that being said, the revolving door was in place here with Alan Dulles. He continued to serve his clients and, as we will see, defied the orders of the President of the United States and the State Department at every turn when it came to working with Nazis. So I, I guess I want to share one more anecdote about this, just to sort of really hammer home this uh, Nazi connection, because I think it's quite important to understanding really how, I guess, cynical, calculating, and uh, inhumane these people were. So both Alan Dulles, the OSS agent, and John Foster Dulles, the Sullivan and Cromwell law partner, actually had personal ties with the Nazis. Alan Dulles met with Hitler in 1933 while on a diplomatic mission with the State Department. So Dulles, you know, was writing letters back, correspondences back to his State Department colleagues, and he displayed curiosity and interest in the rising fascist party. He saw potential business deals with Nazi Germany and was particularly enamored by the Nazi propagandist Joseph Goebbels who led the cruel anti-Semitic media empire in the Reich. Despite all his horrible features, Alan Dulles remarked that he admired Goebbels' quote, frankness and sincerity. Lovely to hear. John Foster Dulles, the elder brother, he arguably admired Nazis openly, and he was even more of a Nazi sympathizer than his brother. 
He insisted that all correspondences from Sullivan and Cromwell to their German clients were signed off as Hail Hitler, and until his death in the mid-60s, John Foster Dulles publicly displayed his admiration of Nazism. So really, it, it runs deeper than just wanting to, you know, serve their clients. The Dulles brothers saw some serious potential in Nazi Germany, um, not only from a business sense, but also from a geopolitical sense. So it's important to note this because it, it will keep coming up, especially with the CIA's continued support of fascist governments around the world. And I guess that leads us into another key tenet of the U.S. intelligence network and of, of U.S. intelligence history, is that these people are rabid anti-communist. Um, this was ingrained in the institution at its most fundamental level, as most of its key members were members of the American ruling elite, who benefited from the capitalist world order. The Dulleses certainly fit into this anti-communist mold. Broadly speaking, American anti-communists viewed the Nazi regime in Germany as a useful fixture in Europe due to their violent anti-communist stance. They were seen as a bulwark against the Soviet Union. The Nazis believed in private property, this aligned with the Dulleses, and even had a policy of reprivatizing businesses, wherein they restored seized property to former owners, especially the seized property of Jewish people. Anti-communist elites, such as the leaders of the OSS, viewed the Nazis as workable allies against communism in Europe. Therefore, the OSS and the subsequent CIA would often ally, arm, and fund fascists to fight the Soviet Union and other socialist states. This phenomena gave rise to multiple alliances forged between the OSS and high-ranking Nazi officials, but also led to what we can call stay-behind organizations, so essentially underground organizations of former Nazis or, 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 I guess, Nazi sympathizers that are armed and funded by these institutions to remain in Europe to keep it away from the communists. So we'll get into that a bit later. With all that being said, I think it's fairly uh, clear that the OSS was largely ineffectual at infiltrating and sabotaging the Nazi regime uh, during the war um, and imparting any useful information regarding enemy troop movements or enemy activity at all. I mean, this could have been chalked up to incompetence. I mean, Wild Bill was seen as largely incompetent, but I see it more as a lack of effort due to a lot of the high-ranking OSS agents having clear Nazi sympathies. What is clear, though, is that the OSS's main successes, um, if you want to call them that, these were by no means successes, um, if you're, you know, an anti-fascist, uh, came near the end of the war and usually involved collaborating with Nazi elements. By outlining OSS activities during the end of the Second World War, we will see the laying of the groundwork for the future CIA operations throughout Europe and their activities that are aimed at circumventing European democracy to ensure that communists or even left-leaning governments will never be elected in Western Europe. So in the next part, we will be covering Operation Sunset, which is Alan Dulles's harebrained scheme to broker a separate peace with Nazi Germany and to ensure that the Nazi Reich would exist post-war. That being said, this is all I've got for today. These videos take a real... Alright, so that was from the Eyes Wide Open channel. And there's five videos on there at the moment. So I'm going to... Every now and again, I'll, I'll put one of these videos in. Because I like the way that he puts them together. And they're based on good source material, I think. So I'm quite happy to play those and, and take those as more or less the... Uh, the starting point for discussions. So we we're having a good good old chat in the in the chat room. We've got half a dozen people in the chat room at the moment.
all chipping in. So we've got Manifesto Susie Q, Net Effect, Mist, Captain Fred, all chipping into the conversation. So if even if you if you can't make a contribution to the the station financially, just come down and join us in the chat room and uh, support that way. It's a it's a, a reasonably friendly bunch, strong opinions usually, but a reasonably friendly bunch nonetheless. Now my my take on on the current situation is. There's a process going on. There's a political process rolling through. And there's a psychological process going on at, at the level of the human species. So this is all a bit abstract, but we're moving from unconscious dualism to conscious dualism at the moment, which means that more people are seeing enemies everywhere. More people are seeing threats everywhere but it's a necessary part of the process doesn't it doesn't mean there's not always a threat sometimes there's a threat maybe sometimes the threat's exaggerated maybe it's exaggerated to sell patriots food or whatever alex jones style nutraceuticals if you're selling if you're selling patriots storable foods and you've got to exaggerate the threat to get the sale so it's part of the business model for Alex Jones and the people who are doing that sort of thing so you have to take that into consideration as well so the threat may not be as serious as as those people are telling us but it's certainly more serious than the mainstream media is telling us it is so somewhere in between is the truth somewhere in between is a place where there's there's no agendas to to influence what's what's actually being said, but you you've got to, everybody's got to get there at their own speed, and you've got to go through the dualism to get there. Now we were we were talking about do viruses exist and Robert Malone, and my take is that viruses don't exist, but it's taken me three years of thinking about it and watching videos and reading websites to get there. Robert Malone won't go there. So he's totally committed to the to the virus narrative. And he's part of the deep state. He's also part of the political process because he's associated with the, the JFK campaign. The, or the Robert Kennedy Jr. campaign, rather. So there are power games being played and... Uh, no virus is not a place you can go if you're trying to win political power. So it, it would be difficult to convince the American people that viruses don't exist at this point. That's for a, someday in the future. So we, we have to work with what we've got, which is the consciousness that, that we're living in. And uh, most people aren't ready for no virus yet. Most people, most people are seeing invisible enemies everywhere and wanting to find somebody to blame for everything that's going on. And sometimes there's more than one place to put the blame. Sometimes the blame's in the entire system. So even looking for individuals is a tricky thing. 
obviously there are people that will need to be held accountable for this situation that we're in and uh, most of them are fairly fairly obvious at this point but the systemic problems need to be looked at as well the systemic problems in the universities in the scientific publishing in peer review in all of those things are biased in one particular direction we have to move move the discussion so that the bias is is taken out of that discussion so we can have proper science uh, i'm no expert but uh proper science is the only way that we can go really because what we've got now is a religion and uh religions are always problematic and generally speaking relig religions lead to crusades and crusades lead to slaughter so at the moment we've got the religion of the virus and uh that's a problem some point in the near future we might end up with a religion of artificial intelligence which will be a problem as well but we're not quite there yet and there might at some point be a way to use artificial intelligence use chat gpt against the establishment narratives but i'm still looking into that so i can't tell you exactly how to do it yet all right we're coming up to the end of the show so just a reminder uh, i do have a podcast version of this show which you can find on spotify and on apple podcasts and on tune in and on audible bizarrely enough audible about seven percent of my downloads come from audible which is not really what i was expecting but that but it's a it's a good it's a good solid place spotify as well 20 percent come from spotify and the rest come from podbean which is where the podcast version is based so if, if you do find me any anywhere else i'm on bit under the title radio projects i'm on odyssey under radio projects i'm on rumble under uh, radio projects and free association radio show i think so i'd appreciate it if you could subscribe to those places if you find me there um, i'm looking at doing more more things on rumble and more live shows on Podbean at the moment. But uh, depending on my mood, I did a show at 7 o'clock in the morning a couple of days ago, and it was a reasonably successful show. It was Friday, well, it must have been yesterday, Friday morning. So more, more shows on Podbean at that kind of time, because I can catch the late night people in America and Australia at that kind of time. You can catch Asia, Australia, and the US to some extent. All right, that's pretty much it for now. I'm gonna I'm gonna take my leave for this week. I'll be back next week. Uh, my my technology setup's reasonable at the moment, so it looks like I'll be here every week for a while. I might take the odd sunny day off though. I reserve the right to go out in the sun occasionally. Uh, but that's it from me for now. Thanks for listening. And I'll see you next week.
listening to Revolution Radio. Hey everyone, it's Barbara Jean Lindsay, the Cosmic Oracle. If you have questions about your past lives or future plans, need answers from the cosmos about your love life or career, or just want to keep your finger on the pulse of the planet, check out my show, The Cosmic Oracle, here on Revolution Radio at freedomslips.com. Hi, I'm Bill Johnson. Some consider my efforts to be an underground law school. I am not an attorney, and I do not give legal advice. I teach. That's lawful and legal. Consider yourself served. You are to appear Wednesday nights, 10 p.m. Eastern, Studio A. My forte? Foreclosure and contract law. Grab your legal pad and pen. Learn a broad spectrum of law spanning administrative, criminal, family, tort, and federal law. Fools and losers cling to old cases. I dissect and comment on the latest rulings that control the courts. Don't be a loser. And if you don't appear, you will be held in contempt. Are you interested in the paranormal? Murder mystery? Real natural law? Do you enjoy interviews with amazing guests? Then join Crip Rick every Monday night, 6 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, right here on Revolution Radio. Studio A, freedomslips.com. Crip Rick's iPhone, thank you. Welcome to the Crypt. <laughs> what the heck is the truth, Jihad? Hey, I'm Kevin Barrett, host of Truth Jihad Radio.